Welcome to the Department of Building Inspections Brown Bag Lunch Series. We are very pleased today to have a chance to actually look at the stuff we are always talking about, which is how things get built. And we were here in uh, a, the middle of a construction site in San Francisco, Mercy Housing. It's being built at between 9th and 10th between Market and Mission Streets. And thanks to Cahill for letting us in. And we have all of the people here who are uh, part of the project, including the contract. And there are a couple of retail spaces, the tenants of which are still to be determined. And are these high-rise buildings? They are high-rise buildings. So a high-rise building is a building that is more than 75 feet from the point of fire department access on the ground to the floor of the highest occupied floor in the building. Correct. Under the building code. Correct. I'm glad we agree. It's important that we agree on these things. So. Um, this is a high-rise building, and this is also going to be a high-rise building. They're starting construction actually yesterday. Are the standards for a high-rise building that's built for, you know, affordable housing and sponsored by the government, are the standards of construction the same as they would be if we were to build a high-rise luxury building on this site? Yes. There is no institutionalized double standard in the building code at all. We have the same standard of safety for everybody, regardless of their income. That is absolutely true. That, that's what our charge happens to be. You design these buildings for, who, who is actually hiring you to do this work? Mercy Housing, the developer. Okay, and what is your role in the construction, actually? Do you come out and keep an eye on it? Me, personally? Well, you're a firm. Uh, we designed the building. We worked with a team of our, uh, engineers to design the systems. We permitted the building.
Welcome to the Department of Building Inspections Brown Bag Lunch Series. We are very pleased today to have a chance to actually look at the stuff we are always talking about, which is how things get built. And we were here in uh, a, the middle of a construction site in San Francisco, Mercy Housing. It's being built at between 9th and 10th between Market and Mission Streets. And thanks to Cahill for letting us in. And we have all of the people here who are uh, part of the project, including the contractors, the uh, design engineers, soils engineers, uh, structural folks. I think we should start by just uh, asking the question, what is a high-rise building? And what makes this different from any other kind of building? Um, we have with us Richard Shang, who is the architect for this project. Uh, this is actually two projects, is that right, where we're uh, at? That's correct. Um, the senior building, about a little over 100 units uh, HUD funded. The family building, 135 units of affordable housing. There's a community center. There's also a um, child development center, um, a youth center. And there are a couple of retail spaces, the tenants of which are still to be determined. And are these high-rise buildings? They are high-rise buildings. So a high-rise building is a building that is more than 75 feet from the point of fire department access on the ground to the floor of the highest occupied floor in the building. Correct. Under the building code. Correct. I'm glad we agree. It's important that we agree on these things. So um, this is a high-rise building, and this is also going to be a high-rise building. They're starting construction actually yesterday. Are the standards for a high-rise building that's built for you know, affordable housing and sponsored by the government, are the standards of construction the same as they would be if we were to build a high-rise luxury building on this site? There is no institutionalized double standard in the building code at all. We have the same standard of safety for everybody, regardless of their income. That is absolutely true. That, that's what our charge happens to be. You design these buildings for, who, who is actually hiring you to do this work? Mercy Housing, the developer. Okay, and what is your role in the construction, actually? Do you come out and keep an eye on it? Me, personally? Well, you're a firm. Uh, we designed the building. We worked with a team of uh, engineers to design the systems. We permitted the building, and we will come out and um, observe the construction to make sure that the construction conforms to the intent of the permitted documents. Right. One of the things you mentioned, and by the way, why don't you tell us the name of your firm so we oh, can... Oh, I'm sorry. It's uh, KMD, Kaplan McLaughlin Diaz. Kaplan McLaughlin Diaz. And one of the things that uh, was mentioned is that they coordinated, they coordinate with the other engineering and design people and the construction uh, firm. And one of the major problems in these kinds of big construction projects is coordination, for sure, making sure that everybody's building the same building, and when you're done, everything fits together right. And in large measure, that's the architect's job, is to oversee coordination. Do you, do you uh, kind of make sure that the structural stuff fits together with your architectural and make sure that the mechanical fits together with your architecture? That's where we earn most of our money. <laughs> and that's really one of the most difficult uh, issues. There's, there's no question about it. We actually had Cahill come on board um, at the latter stages of design to help us with constructability, detailing, um, sequencing of systems, that sort of thing. Okay, we're fortunate today to have John Gushan here, who's a soils engineer with Treadwell and Roll. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. And uh, one of the design team, one of the original first persons to be looking at this whole project is the soils engineer because they look at where the buildings want to be built, what are the soils like, and how do they 
make the building hit the ground. So people always say that, oh, yeah, you're going to go down to bedrock. Are we going down to something called bedrock? Is there bedrock here? In, in this well, there is bedrock, but it's pretty deep, probably over 200 feet deep. These piles are going to go down about 50 feet, and, and below that marsh layer that I was talking about is what we call colma sand. It's about 35 foot down is where it starts. It's very dense, very hard sand, um, almost as hard as concrete. These piles here that you can see go down about 15 feet into that colma sand. The load is transferred from pile caps. Well, the columns are sitting on the pile caps. The pile caps transfer the load down through the pile into that dense sand layer. Basically, there's a pile cap, and what that means is that after they put the pile in, they put a, a little concrete. Is it a concrete or a steel it's a, cap? It's a concrete cap that can tie more than one or one more than one pile together. And the cap transfers the load from the building structure onto the pile. Yes, that's, that's correct. Okay. What is the uh, potential for earthquake uh, movement on this kind of soil? People are always worried about earthquakes. Yeah, this, this area, the groundwater is pretty deep, so you don't have to worry about liquefaction. What you do have, though, is all this loose fill and loose sand can densify during an earthquake, and I think we estimated between two to three inches of settlement could occur. So these piles will hold the building up. The ground can settle around the piles and not cause any damage to the structure. What they're going to do is they're going to screw this pile down into the ground by using a combination of forces. They're going to push down on it and twist it into the ground. Uh, the upper 20, 30 feet should go pretty easily until they hit that coma formation, and then it's going to start tightening up. And then at some point, it could actually stop the pile. The resistance will be so strong, they could actually shear off the pile. So at that point, we'll know to stop the pile. Okay, and your firm... Or somebody here is what's called a special inspector who's paying attention to how this is being done. Is, is that right? That's correct. We have a man out here right now observing what's going on. And we get reports from him saying, yes, it met the requirements or there was some problem and here's how we solved it. So we, we keep a, cle a complete record of this. Okay, what are, they, what are they doing here? Okay, well, now they're starting to screw it into the ground and you can see the marks on there. We can see how deep they're going. Uh, for every foot, our field guy out there is actually recording what the... Uh, pressure is on the pile. And how many of these piles are we going to be having for the building that's being built out here? This building has about 200 of these piles. And this is Steve from Substructures Corporation, Substructures Support, who's doing this uh, substructure work, actually. And do these all get filled with concrete, ultimately? Yeah. Yes, they do. Once they're all installed, and we'll come back and fill them. Occasionally, we'll put concrete in them as we're going so that the concrete crew can start working right behind us, putting in their forms and rebar, which typically works out pretty well because they can work in fairly close proximity to this particular operation. Can you tell us anything about this gigantic rig that you're using here, Steve? Yeah, it's, uh, it's what's known as a Delmag RH-26. Uh, it's made in Germany. It's a very high-power drilling rig, basically. The rig itself is pretty much off the shelf. Uh, it's been adapted for our particular installation, and the methodology that we developed and used here is, a, as John mentioned, the right combination of torque, crowd, and um, advancement rate is how we're able to screw these things in, and we, we vary that depending on the conditions. This is quite quiet compared with, uh, with uh, other types of installation. Right, that's a distinct advantage with this system here. Uh, when you're pounding in, in downtown San Francisco, you get a lot of noise complaints, especially with businesses, restaurants, etc. Here, um, this is a lot quieter. 
it's perhaps maybe a little more costly. It's a little bit maybe slower than a, a typical pile driving rig. But the advantages are that it's quiet. You're not disturbing neighbors. It makes you know the city officials' job a lot easier, and, and obviously the residents and neighbors around here. Um, we do get a lot of complaints when people are driving piles. You can imagine. And one of the um, things that the Department of Building Inspection does is issues these special permits for pile driving noise. And we try and figure out who is going to be the least impacted or what will have the, the, the least impact on business and restaurants and people trying to sleep and so on. And as the city gets more and more developed, we're finding fewer and fewer places where we can insert that pile driving and, and have acceptable impact. So I think we're seeing more and more of these uh, this kind of drilled piles. I was most intrigued by your definition of a high-rise. You said anything over seven, any building over 75 feet. To the floor of the highest story of occupancy, not to the top of the building. Okay. Um, on the peninsula, we, anything that's essentially over four feet, pardon me, over four stories over um, is essentially, I think, considered a high-rise, and certainly from the media's perspective. So if, if 70 or 75 feet, is a high-rise, how would you start describing buildings that are, say, three, four, five stories? Do they also have names in terms of the classification of the building? They do. We have in San Francisco since 1984 used the California Building Code. Prior to that, we used the San Francisco Building Code, which is a very special building code. Now, everybody uses the same building code, and a high-rise is defined the same way everywhere in the state of California, 75 feet. Um, what is a building less than a high-rise called? I think not a high-rise. I think it would be, uh, uh, people informally call that a mid-rise building, but there is no official definition. It's just not a high-rise building. Um, so uh, they use the same codes on the peninsula and in the Central Valley and anywhere in Los Angeles. On a process like this, what's the start date and the completion date from the time when the permits are issued, the plans are drawn, to the end? Steve, how long is it going to take you to build these buildings? Two years apiece. Two years apiece. That's pretty basic. Okay. About 22 months for the smaller one and 24 months for 10th admission. Do you have any idea how long it took to get the permits for this? Somebody from Redevelopments here, I know. I've been working on this project since 2002. We probably submitted to planning in 2004 um, to get entitlements. We actually reconfigured the building once. And... Um, it took us about three years to get entitlements and then design and then a, about a year to get the building permit. That's, that sounds more like a traditional San Francisco building. And that's actually pretty quick and under some circumstances. You think about the process you have to go through to get the city to approve the use of this kind of space. And, and the, not just the technical issues, but just the use uh, uh, approvals are really complicated. And in this case, we probably didn't have a lot of appeals either. In many cases, we have neighbor involvement where there are appeals or changes and only reconfiguring the building once is a is actually doing a good job in San Francisco. So we go from the building that's just begun yesterday drilling the piles to the building over here which is based on the same construction technique I presume. We have drilled piles, pile caps and you're building on top of it. Tell us again how many stories is this? It's going to be 12 stories and right now we are on the ninth floor. The false work is up on the ninth floor. We'll be pouring the ninth floor on Tuesday. How long does it take you from floor to floor to get ready to pour? We're on about a two-and-a-half-week cycle from floor to floor. Do you reuse all the material and take the formwork and move it up to the next floor? Yeah, everything is the same materials recycled. We, we switch it out once on the way up. I see. And one of the ways buildings are designed, typically, is that they are stacked 
so that it's pretty repetitive, so that the shafts all go up and the, and the structure all is one on top of the other. It makes, it, it makes you able to build it in the way you're doing it. And one of the things that I see uh, when I look at a building like this is how soon after they run the floor up, they've already got the work inside the building going. They've got uh, plumbing in, drain waste and vent lines in, they've got fire sprinklers in, they've got the interior partitions in. Typically, we're, we're falling three floors below. As soon as the reshores come out, we start our framing, and then everything follows suit. Each floor is at a different progression. Obviously, the first floor is the farthest along. And uh, the, the major issues that follow along include plumbing, fire sprinklers, framing, mechanical. Mechanical. So what is, what is mechanical? Are they heating and air conditioning systems. Heating and air conditioning. Now, these are residential units up there. Is that right? Correct. Okay, so they have more services than maybe an empty commercial office might have. This is true. Okay, so let's see. Let's work our way up. So we've got we've drilled. And then we're, the first thing we do is pour this first floor slab. We get the first floor slab poured, and then we'll start on our columns and vertical works, columns and walls. And as soon as that's about halfway through, we start the decking behind. So we're always kind of chasing ourselves in the cycle. How thick is the slab? This ground floor slab. This ground floor is ten inches, and all the post tension are seven and a half. Uh, my name is Farshad Kodiari. I'm a Soha Structural Engineer. Farshad Kodiari from Soha Structural Engineers, who we've worked with in the city. In fact, Soha Structural Engineers is one of the engineering firms that the city hired after the 1989 earthquake to go around and evaluate damaged buildings. And so we have a very long and good working relationship with, with Soha Engineers. So they're building this and they're doing post-tension slabs. What is a post-tension slab and why do you do such a thing? Uh, Post-tension slab is a, is a construction method that uses uh, high-strength tendons uh, to uh, work with concrete and uh, make the concrete section a better section for bending. It has uh, a lot of benefits. It reduces the thickness of the slab. It reduces the number of cracks, and, and uh, you know, the result is a very nice flat slab with very little uh, cracks. Okay. We now have a piece of this... Uh post-tension uh, material. So tell us what we've got and what it's used for and why this is uh, so so wonderful, which it, which it is. This is what's called an unbonded uh, post-tension tendon. Uh, unbonded because because of this uh, plastic sheathing, it does not bond to concrete. Why is that? Why do you want it to do that? Um, because this is, uh, there are two uh, methods of uh, achieving pre-stress uh, construction. One is uh, post-tensioning uh, the other one is um, pre-tensioning, basically. Um, this method that we're using is very uh, conventional for uh, on-site uh, uh, stressing of the, of the slab. And what it does is essentially does not bond to concrete. So you put your form up, you place the tendons, and... Okay, so this is going to be horizontal inside the floor. This will be inside the floor. This is the anchored end of it. Typically, there is a profile, a, a parabolic uh, up and down uh, profile of tendon. You know, the profile is lowest in the mid-span between the supports, and it's usually highest over the columns or supports in general. And what happens is that once you uh, place these inside the formwork, and you have all the other mild reinforcement as well, uh, you pour your concrete, and at a certain point where you have adequate curing of concrete, which is usually about two-thirds uh, ultimate strength of concrete, 
um, then you jack these, then you pull them. So you, put a, you hydraulically pull this. You put a little hydraulic uh, thing on the end of this, and you t tension it up. Tension it up, right. It does two things, essentially. It puts a, a fairly large pre-compression into the, into the concrete slab, and because of the profile, it, al it also wants to lift the slab up. And that's how you counteract some of the actual dead load uh, using this uh, profile. Up. And how long does this, is this intended to last? Uh, to, through the life of the uh, structure, which is okay. basically they, there is a 50-year uh, life of uh, building, but it can go on. Okay, so let's talk about that. So the anticipated life of a building is usually it's 50 years. No, is it 99 okay. years? Okay. Okay. This is a big issue in San Francisco, and uh, and I'm saying that because we are now seeing buildings considered historic resources if they're over 50 years old and they might have any historic value of any sort. And so it seems that once a building has reached a certain age, 50 years or more, we can expect it to be here for a long, long time. We do not, unlike Japan and other places, we go through buildings every 20 years. Um, so we see some assemblies that are put into buildings, especially high-rise buildings, for example, window wall assemblies, which have a, well, reasonable lifespan, maybe 30 years, maybe. And so what that means is that after 30 years, you have to expect to go in and replace the window wall assembly and all of its pieces. And um, in some cases, the, the financing and the owners and the, and the condo owners, whoever it is, are not really aware of all these different life expectancies that, are, that run with the building. And it's, it's an issue that we in the building department are trying to sort out so that we can sort of say, here's what we anticipate the reasonable lifespan of the building to be, and here's... And so the components need to be suitable for that anticipated lifespan. And this certainly is something that has to be because you can't easily take them out and replace them. That's correct. So this is one of the determining factors in what is the life expectancy of one of these high-rise buildings, I would think. Does it make sense? That's right. That's right. Uh, usually there are no problems with, uh, with uh, post-tension slabs. Uh, Corrosion could be an issue if the, the end anchors are not handled correctly. Okay, let's look up there. Can we see uh, can we see any of these end anchors? Yeah, if you look at the edge of the slab, uh, you see those uh, circular holes that are filled with grout that the, the cable's already been cut. Okay, so as you look up on a building that's where the crane is, you can see along the edge of the slab uh, holes. And there are three, typically three together. Is that uh, right? Depends. I can't quite see from. Yeah, it depends. They could it be depends where they are. Up yeah. to four. And they, they will put a hydraulic jack on that. They'll tension it up, tighten it up, and then fill the hole. And we have to make sure that water doesn't get in there. We may have corrosion. So I think we need to back up a little bit and talk about concrete for a second. This building is essentially a concrete building, okay? And it has steel reinforcing in it because concrete is very strong in compression, compression correct. when it's pushing down on it but it's not very strong in other dimensions it doesn't you take a imagine a long concrete bar bending it it's going to break easily yeah right? not much capacity in tension correct not much capacity in tension if you try and pull the ends it's just going to come apart so you use the concrete in compression and the steel for the tension portion Correct. to pick up the tension forces. Correct. Okay, so this building is sort of a traditional, prescriptively designed concrete building. When I say prescriptively designed, what that means is that they're building the building strictly in accordance with the 
book cookbook requirements of the San Francisco or California building code. So what we have here is a building that we are very confident in is going to perform the way we expect it to perform because we built tens of thousands of buildings that look just like the structural system, just like this. Is that, is that, that right? That's correct. It's, okay. it's fairly conventional in terms of residential uh, uh, construction. Right. So what we have then are concrete walls that are reinforced with steel. And I have a couple pieces of steel. Hang on, I'll pass them around. Look what we got here. So that, this is your um, what, what's called mild, mild steel. These are not the high-strength steel that's, that, I, that I was talking about. Uh, that are used as post tension right. attendants. This is the steel that we see in the vertical walls and so on. Right, you use it for columns, foundations. Uh, what grade is this, any idea? These are 60 KSI. Steel. Okay. And so this is steel, and you can get it in all different sizes, uh, usually eighths of an inch uh, different. Is that right? Right, number three, which is uh, three eighths. Num the right. number actually represents right. the number of eighths right. of an inch for diameter. And it goes number all four, number five is maybe, I can't quite tell, five eighths of an inch thick. Steel, we'll pass it around. You guys can feel it. It's heavy. It's And it's, oh, by the way, it's something called deformed. Okay, and deform. Tell us what deform means. Well, these uh, indentations that you see in in the in the surface of the rebar, that is what engages the rebar with the concrete and creates this composite section that uh, works best in compression and tension. Okay, so you can see it's it's rough, and the roughness of it connects more uh, securely. It bonds, yeah. bonds to the concrete. And in fact, when I was in Kobe, Japan, in right after the 1995 Great Hanshin earthquake and looking at some of the damage, I saw some failures of uh, concrete structures where they had non-deformed rebar. That is, it was smooth steel, and it just did not connect with the concrete, and so the concrete could just pull, pull right off it. So this has been, in fact, deformed been used for, you know, 50 or 100 years. I, um, I believe after 1930s, uh, deformed rebar was pretty much used. Right. So this is the standard stuff, but it comes in all different weights and sizes, and that's used in the vertical walls, and in fact, almost any place except for this special slab. Uh, the slab also has mild reinforcement, but it has a lot less mild reinforcement than a conventional slab. They poured the ground, the, the grade, the slab on grade. I presume the slab is sitting right on the ground. Is that correct? It is, it is a slab on grade. However, uh, it's, uh, it's designed as a structural slab. We are really not counting on the bearing of the slab on, on grade because of the poor uh, soil underneath. Uh, we had decided to use a structural slab which spans between a series of interconnected grade beams which goes back to what John mentioned, the, the pile caps and down to the torque down piles. So that even if the ground underneath the building settles, which it possibly could do in an earthquake, right. the slab will retain its location, integrity, right. strength, and so on. It's and not just sitting on the ground. And that's why it, w it is a 10-inch slab. 10-inch slab. It's thicker than uh, your normal, say, 5-inch uh, slab on grade. Okay. Why should it be any thicker than the floor of a floor uh, above? Because uh, our slab on grade is a conventional slab. It is not a post-tension slab. Okay. So as we get up in the building, one of the things that building designers want to do is to make the, the floors as thin as they reasonably can, right? right? Yeah, it, I guess there are several benefits to that. First of all, it reduces the, the, the mass of the building. Uh, for example, we have a seven and a half inch slab here. A conventional slab would be probably in the order of ten and a half inch, which okay. is about I don't know twenty five percent more concrete mass. 
It also reduces the overall floor-to-floor -floor height, which helps tremendously with the architectural facade. Right. One of the, the square footage of the right. One of the things people are always trying to do is increase the floor, is decrease the floor-to-floor -floor height, especially in San Francisco where we have very clearly defined height limits. If you can really shrink the floor-to-floor -floor height, you maybe you can even squeeze another story in there if you're you know, really That's good right. at it. That's so, right. And so we see a lot of people struggling to reduce reduce. Uh, the thickness of all the assemblies, both the structural assemblies and the non-structural portions, which might be above the ceiling. And maybe you have uh, heating, ventilation, air conditioning, plumbing, fire sprinklers, and all that. Let's see if we can shrink all that stuff down and squeeze another story in. Right. So you're saying that the finish of the concrete slab can be, in fact, an exposed and uh, I think, uh, architectural And I think for our building that is the case. So that would mean you have exposed uh, equipment of various uh, I think the utilities are, uh, there is a ceiling at the utilities, but, but the rooms, uh, are they, is that correct, Paul? They're painted uh, and they're used as ceiling. My name is Paul Dent. I'm with Kadama Diseño Architects. We're the associate architect for the project. Great. And within the dwelling units, uh, which are not uh, air-conditioned, uh, the concrete ceiling is typically exposed, and then in most of the public areas, which may be heated and cooled uh, with forced air, that's where you get your drop ceilings. I see. Also okay. in corridors and other public okay. areas like that. So the dwelling units, you say, do not have air conditioning or... No, you, they do they not. They have heating, but not air conditioning. They and... Do they have outside air? Yes, as absolutely. Part of the heating system? Absolutely. They have operable windows, and they also have a system called a Z-duct, which provides fresh air even when the windows are okay. closed. And one of the reasons people have these Z-duct systems in residential buildings is that ever since 1974, uh, Chapter 12A of the California Building Code has required that you have sound transmission isolation between dwelling units so that you can't hear your neighbors and between the residential unit and the cars or the noise outside, if you're in, a, in an urbanized area where you might have a lot of outside noise. And that specifically says that if you're in one of these noise areas, which I presume this is being on a transit corridor, that you must design the building such that you can ventilate the residential unit with the windows closed and meeting all of the noise control requirements. You obviously aren't going to meet the noise control requirements with the windows open. So you close the windows and you still have enough ventilation, which is why people use Z-Docs and other types of uh, ventilation. That's correct. Right. And the uh, bathroom and kitchen exhaust fans are on at a low level all the time. So they're always, even when the windows are closed, they're always pulling in this, you know, adequate amount of ventilation air from the exterior. Good. Are there any other special noise control things in these units while we're talking about noise control? Well, the code requires uh, what is called sound transmission class 50 walls between units and between uh, units above and below. So concrete floors are very good at deadening airborne sound, but impact sound is more difficult to control, and you can imagine a heel on concrete reverberating throughout that slab. So we have to provide a little bit of padding between any hard finish materials such as tile or uh, even uh, sheet vinyl um, right. to deaden that sound, the impact sound. So that means that when, we when the building is designed and when the building department permits it, there's a specific floor assembly that goes down. And maybe it's a carpet with a pad under it. And people say later, five, ten years from now, well, I'm going to change my carpeting out or I'm going to replace my linoleum. They don't really fully understand that that's part of the sound transmission assembly that is 
required by the code, but also protects them. And so we see, in many cases, this long-term degeneration of sound transmission. Also in walls between the dwelling units, you can see that here they're making, uh, making the walls out of light-gauge metal studs. And in order to make the uh, sound transmission work, you have to do these exactly right. You have to have the uh, sound isolation between the sheetrock and the stud and the stud and the sheetrock on the other side. How are you doing that in this building? Oh, we have a few different wall assemblies. You have one typical wall assembly that goes between units, and that's a rather straightforward assembly with, uh, with two layers of drywall on each side. Then in addition, where a unit is up against a stair, we have a sound-rated shaft wall assembly. Shaft wall is a special kind of uh, stud that allows you to insert the drywall panels from the side that you're standing on. While we're here and looking up, I see this crane, and we have all been reading about cranes and crane issues and crane safety. So, Steve, come on over here and tell us a little bit about safety on this structure and your safety program and about how the crane fits into that. Well, the crane is probably one of the most dangerous pieces of equipment we have, so it's the most rigorously inspected. We had Cal OSHA out just last weekend doing test weights and, and everything on it. So let me, let me mention now, Cal OSHA comes out because in the state of California, unlike the city of New York or other places, in the state of California, cranes are inspected by the state, not by the local jurisdiction. In the wake of a crane collapse down on California and Kearney Streets in 1990, the Board of Supervisors passed legislation, which is now still in a regulations in the building code, to require crane safety programs and you know make sure the building department has collected all the relevant information. Um, but we rely upon Cal OSHA to do the actual field inspection and keep an eye on it. So you had Cal OSHA out here? Yes. What correct. do they do for an inspection? Um, they bring about 20,000 pounds of test weights and test all the weight limits and, and everything up on the crane, check all the welds, bolting, connections, all the electronics, the limits. They ride around on the They do everything up there. So is there somebody up there right now? Uh, Tom is in the, in the cab. My do you have him on your radio there? I can get him. Can you have him wave to us? <laughs> Hey, Tom. <laughs> now, there's a job, huh? No, there's no bathroom. We won't discuss that. Actually, the crane safety rules say there, there has to be some provision. There, there is a provision. <laughs> Don't stand under this provision. Um, now, this is, we have a couple different kinds of cranes we see around the city. We have one, we have sort of a fixed, fixed crane, fixed height crane. Yes. Like this. And then we have some that uh, are climbing cranes where they this, can... This crane here is actually a freestanding crane. It's not bolted down. And so all of these weights that we see, all these big concrete weights at the bottom are... Yeah, it's sitting on 160,000 pounds of concrete is, is the ballast base of this crane. Did you have to pour a big uh, foundation under that? This is part of the, uh, I guess, construction means and methods that we, we get to uh, work with the contractor. Uh, we get the loads from the crane manufacturer, figure out what kind of uh, downward loads and what kind of overturning loads we're dealing with, and then we accordingly make sure that the foundation can, can take that load. Also, all the anchorages at the floors are uh, adequate. So uh, why would you do this instead of uh, fastening it to a, you know, a fixed base? This, this crane here is not part of the foundation system, so it's outboard of the, of the structure, and basically... It's just something that worked well with the courtyard because all the landscaping, irrigation, everything else outside. 
Okay. The crane that's going over here in a month will be part of the foundation structure. And bolted to some Exactly, designed into the, the piles and everything else. Great. Now, the other kind of crane are some kind that sort of work their way up. As the building gets taller, they lift themselves up, and you slide a piece in and yeah. set it back down and Climbers. bolt it together. Climbing cranes. And, uh, in fact, it was one of those climbing cranes that was the one that collapsed in 1990 during the, during the period when it was climbing. We don't like climbing cranes. Yeah. They're, you know, safe if they're done exactly. Everything has to be exactly right all the time. Yes. No margin here. Not much margin, anyway. How do you get one of those set up? If it's not a climbing crane where you lift a piece and stick a piece underneath, how does one of those get set up? This crane's brought in by truck in, in sections, and basically after the foundation is poured, they come out with a mobile crane unit, a 225 hydro, and they'll put up the mass in sections, and then they'll build the jib on the ground in one long piece, and they'll lift it straight up onto the motor. What, what lifts it up there? A 250 or 225-ton hydro portable crane. So they'll bring another crane in to set the crane up here. Exactly. Right. At uh, what wind speeds do you shut down the crane? This particular crane's brand new unit. It automatically shuts down at 35 miles an hour. Now, I actually got a call. I was at home uh, a couple years back, and some very concerned neighbor is saying, "There's a crane. I can see it from my window, and the crane is spinning around, and you know, the, it's free spinning, and I'm worried about it." Actually, when they shut down, they are not fixed in position. They're allowed to uh, rotate not freely with the wind, so that you may see them even. Weather vaning. You may see them uh, when the when the sh uh, construction job is shut down, but they're still moving. That's why they do that. Reduces the load on the crane. I, I was noticing that the crane uh, wavers back and forth, and I'm wondering to what degree the guy up the top there is typical. And weights, of course, are going to have more of a strain the further out. Do you carry weights that you wouldn't be able to take to the end of the boom? And then how does how do you keep from a malfunction of taking it out to the end of the boom? With, with the limit system on this crane, it's, it's basically, it's got a 145-foot jib on it, and as you go out, your capacity lessens. This crane here is good for 17,500 pounds, so about 60 feet, and every 10 feet you go out, it just drops down. So there's warning systems on the crane, first buzzers to tell the person it won't pick up, and if he actually tries to override it, it'll just shut down. The only thing it'll let him do is, is drop the load. As the the ground actually moves, and if you exceed the two, three inches that you have de designed for the b building to s settle down, what would happen? How would that movement tr transmit through the, the floors and the slab? Uh, most of the settlement takes place uh, right after construction. The two inch that John was mentioning is a total settlement. Most of the settlement takes place due to the mass of the building itself. Uh, once we get an earthquake, uh, the foundation is designed such that all the uh, friction forces against the piles would resist uh, any further displacement. There will be some displacement, uh, but uh, it's all calculated into the, the computer model that, that we have generated. Um, and this building is perfectly safe. How, how much settlement would you expect when you from the initial baseline? Typically, for pile foundations, we design for an inch or less. On this job, I think it's about three-quarters of an inch is what's expected. And does that have any effect or impact on any of the systems in the building or anything? Most of the settlement occurs during construction. The, the material sandy, 
So as, as you load it, it's instantaneous. So once you get most of the building structure itself up, then you can put all the finishing on it and, and you won't see the cracks because most of the settlement will be gone already. Okay, let's talk about green design now. Really a big thing in San Francisco. In fact, pending right now before the Board of Supervisors is legislation that would, if this building were to be built, say, next year, require that this be a lead I think it would be a certified building or maybe even a silver building if it were to be built next year. Um, but how, what kind of green provisions have we built into this uh, building? We have taken the lead checklist and done as much as we can within the limitations of, um, to be perfectly honest, some of the budgetary constraints that we have. We are hoping to be sort of, uh, to achieve just under a lead silver level although we are not going to go for the certification pro through the certification process for this particular building. Okay, and so are there any, can you mention specific uh, green building uh, construction um, or strategies? One of the ones actually that we worked with um, our structural engineer here on is using um, fly ash in the concrete. And well, what is fly ash and why is that green? Well, fly ash is a byproduct of the industrial uh, waste basically, the, the, the smoke that you see coming through the smokestack, the ash is collected and it provides a great material, great uh, part of a uh, concrete mix uh, and it's recycled and, it's, and it's, uh, it's relatively inexpensive, although it's getting more and more expensive since uh, there is a lot of demand for it. Any other green? Uh, it, it, yeah, it does affect the curing of concrete. It, it prolongs it. Does it affect the ultimate strength in any way? It actually improves it. Great. Uh, but what I was talking about as far as budget goes with our friends, contractors, is that because the curing time then is extended, uh, we could have put more fly ash in, this, in the concrete. Um, but the more you put in, the longer the curing time, the longer the schedule, the longer um, it'll take. Okay. And can you mention any other green uh, features that are of note in this particular high-rise? Sure, there are a number of green features in this building, such as using um, uh, recycled products, uh, such as carpet, cabinetry, things like that. Um, we are using uh, what they call uh, a low, we're using a low formaldehyde, or actually no added formaldehyde um, uh, wood in the cabinets. Um, we are, of course, the building is largely not air conditioned, which in our climate, the climate is B9, so it allows that. Uh, and you can certainly think of that as a green point. How about water, water strategies? And obviously, you know, when, when you talk about LEED certification, a lot of the factors that they take into account are things that we are able to achieve just by virtue of our outstanding location here. We're walking distance to the best transit hub in the city. Um, we have, uh, you know, walking services for just about anything anybody could want uh, within very close distance. Uh, yeah, Michio Moted, uh, we have, uh, we have high efficiency boilers to heat the water. It's a water source, uh, domestic heating system. What is the, uh, next to the tower crane? We got a, a big blue piece here. Tell us what that is and how you use it. That is a concrete placing boom. Basically, it's how I get my concrete up onto the deck. So concrete trucks will back in here. It'll go right to the hopper, this red hopper right here. 
And then I've got a slick line that runs up the center of the boom, and I can place all my, my decks, walls, and columns with, with that up there. It must take a heck of a lot of power to push concrete up that thing. A lot of pressure. And how much concrete do you typically place in a... In a um, on an average up? day, the, the walls are using about 147 yards, and the decks are about 210. Okay, and how much is in a, in a truck delivery typically? Ten, ten yards. Ten yards, okay. So you got a pile of trucks all backed up here. Yeah. All day long. Where do you bring, where's the concrete coming from now? Uh, we got our suppliers, Bodie Concrete, off of Third Street. Okay. There aren't that many sub concrete suppliers left in San Francisco. You know, we used to have a bunch of them, and now Bodie, is there anybody beside Bodie? I think uh, maybe. I like Bodie, so we'll, yeah, we'll talk yeah, about Bodie. Yeah. But there are very few, and now they're bringing concrete in from, you know, distance because it's uh, there aren't that many yard, uh, yards that provide that any longer. In fact, in general, San Francisco, as you all know, part of the big planning issues in San Francisco are the loss of uh, PDR, production, distribution, and repair, and construction-related uh, services. Uh, we still have some, of course, but you know now we're seeing more and more of these services outside of the city, and the costs go up as you have to import uh, goods and workers and so on. And you know when you get your brakes brakes fixed in your car, pretty soon you have to go to Colma or you know someplace to get it done because it's uh, San Francisco is becoming not a PDR-friendly place. Although I know the planning department is working very hard to to keep it a sort of a, in its uh, working condition, and I wish them luck. The way that these concrete walls are done is typically there's a prefabricated panel that's set in place. And so these prefabricated, are is it plywood? Yeah, plywood and 2 by 4 studs, hairpins and uh, snap ties. You look at the very top there, those walls were poured yesterday. So they're going to start taking them apart today. It has form release material so that the concrete doesn't stick to it. Presumably, correct. It's a it's a special plywood with a HDL finish on it, which makes it strip a little bit easier. And we also spray it with oil before each pour. That form release oil makes it easy to pop these things apart and then reuse the panels. And as you said, you reuse them, but you cycle through one time in the course of the job. Correct. We'll we'll change the plywood out usually one time through a 12-story building just because the plywood starts to get worn and used. Now, how do you keep this thing aligned so that everything's you know perfectly lined up? We have control. We have control lines that we actually place on top of the surrounding buildings around here, and we have um, grid lines and controls done by Cahill Layout and also Martin Ron Surveyors who double check us. And you use little laser. Uh, yeah, we plumb, every, plumb everything up with transits. Mm -hmm. And how about how close do you? What's your tolerance on these things? Say, say this line all the way up this building. With before it's tensioned, we're running within a sixteenth of an inch. But as the building gets tensioned, it, it tends to shrink. Mm -hmm. Right. And when the architects design these buildings, what is the um, allowable uh, uh, tolerance for the design? You know, so you know, can you you can move things around a quarter of an inch or so and still get everything to fit together? A quarter of an inch would be a lot, actually. An eighth of an inch is pretty typical. Um, when you get involved with drywall work, we have some dimensions. Steve probably isn't too happy about this, but we get down to an eighth of an inch sometimes in our dimensions. Um, obviously, certain areas are more critical than others. There are a lot of dimensions that come out of uh, disabled access requirements where they truly are minima that have to be met. And the city has a field inspector who will come out and measure every one of those. And if you don't have five feet clear, you'll have to move it. So we try not to design those tight areas in close proximity to concrete walls, obviously. But sometimes it, it's necessary. It has to be done. Right. The California Building Code specifically says that you're allowed to use reasonable construction tolerances. And, in fact, we have 
adopted a, a regulation in the California in the San Francisco Building Code. There's a copy on that table. Well, that is the San Francisco Building Code over there. It's a couple thousand pages. And it tells us what tolerances are allowable, and it's not a lot. Not a lot. And for disabled access, the tolerances are do not exceed. You may not exceed at all, period. And so this will be a, an accessible building, I presume. Every floor is an elevator building, so every floor and every unit has to at least be accessible from the public spaces. Is that Yes. Correct? What the code requires typically in California is that every unit has to have a clear path of travel to the front door of the unit as well as through all, air, all public areas of the building. Then within the units, a certain percentage of those have to be outfitted with the grab bars and additional clearance of doors and things like that that are required for full accessibility. Right. Now, that's important for a, uh, a big building, and especially a high-rise building, because you've got to lay this stuff out exactly right. The plumbing has to be in exactly the right place. The walls have to be in exactly the right place all the way up, or you don't meet all these very, very critical tolerances. So it's a real challenge to make sure it's all exactly where it belongs all the and way up. We were talking before about post-tension slabs. Post-tension slabs are obviously a wonderful tool for reducing the amount of concrete, making buildings lighter and less expensive. But the tendons take a very precise path through the slab, and so those openings for plumbing, electrical, etc., really have to be designed ahead of time. And once they're there, you can't change them a lot. And a lot of building owners don't understand that they can't come through and drill a hole through their slab 20 years from now. Tell us what this stuff is. Uh, that would be fire sprinkler pipe. Okay, so we have a bunch of different kinds of pipes in here. This is fire sprinkler pipe, and so they would hang this from the ceiling somehow, and they'd run their fire sprinkler line through here. Yeah, all the inserts and all the, as Paul was saying on these decks, there's a lot of pre-planning and coordination because you cannot drill into this slab. So like right now when the slab's on just a plywood level, all the guys are up there nailing in inserts from the top on all the layouts. So basically all the walls are already pre-laid out, so when they strip, there's a threaded insert ready for them to go into. They're not going down below and drilling a hole no, or no. something. You'll, you'll see if you look up underneath of the slabs, you'll see the spray-painted lines. They follow the tendons, and they're basically giving us a guideline just in case there ever is an issue. We kind of know where they're at. So all the stuff to hang this is already figured out, and it's put in before you pour the, the slab. And then you can see the walls going up, and the walls are of, uh, what, what do they call this stuff? Tell us what this is made of. The interior walls are all framed with light gauge steel studs, which are uh, typically 25 gauge, although they're in, on this project because it's a high rise, uh, they tend to be a little bit heavier due to the acceleration forces that occur in the upper floors. And then typically one, two, or sometimes even more layers of drywall over that. How much drift, how much movement can we expect in a building like this in either wind load or seismic load. Now, now, you should understand that high-rise buildings are usually governed by either wind or seismic. And in this case, it's not that tall a building. So I, I don't know. Tell us, tell us about that. Yeah, most often uh, buildings in San Francisco and in the Bay Area are not governed by, by wind, except maybe in, in Central Valley, maybe one or two-story wood frame buildings with, with a very large surface area. Uh, so seismic is, or earthquake is what's governing this, uh, this design. This is a this is a shear wall uh, building. The lateral system is a, is a bearing shear walls, and it's a fairly stiff building. Uh, the actual displacement I can't recall, but they're not they're not much more than a couple of inches. 
how do we finish these? What goes on the outside of these buildings? Give us a give us a little update on how you finish this thing. The most of the exterior skin of this building is what's called, uh, for short, GFRC, which is glass fiber reinforced concrete. Uh, it looks somewhat similar to the more old-fashioned um, precast concrete panels. Both are types of exterior skin panels that are fabricated off-site and then brought to the job site and raised and uh, assembled to the side of the building. But GFRC is unique in that it's only three-quarters of an inch thick. There's no uh, steel to provide reinforcement inside it at all. So it has its own structural system that goes behind it, a series of mostly tube steel. And that has to be engineered as a separate item, and, and it all functions together as a, as a system that, as I say, just gets installed onto the face of the building. Then windows, doors, etc., go into openings in the GFRC. They get flashed and um, sealed with joint sealant. Typically, we try to maintain three-quarter-inch gaps between any kind of door, window, louver, any other kind of penetration to the outside. So one of the biggest issues with all buildings is water penetration and waterproofing. Probably the number one problem that we see in buildings is water leakage. And uh, how do we prevent that here? We have caulking, we have flashing, we have... We have, obviously the flashing goes in first. We are using a few different kinds of flashing. A lot of it is uh, typical galvanized sheet metal, what they call GSM. Um, however, in some more specialized or demanding uh, locations, we have a number of different rubberized kind of flashing materials. Some are more stretchable than others. We also use some flashing materials that have a, uh, a, a bitumen coating, which is a type of, uh, it actually comes from a clay, and it has the ability, when it gets wet, it expands a little bit and will seal Right. Gaps. People always are selling waterproofing materials, but there's really only one thing that works, and that's have no holes, you know, no openings at all. That works really, really well. The other thing that works is when things lap over each other so that you have flashing and... and Flashing, a well-flashed and counter-flashed detail doesn't leak. But as soon as you're relying on water weatherproofing, waterproofing, caulking, even if they say, you know, it's, uh, it doesn't shrink, it shrinks. It all shrinks. It all fails. It's, once again, when we look at the durability of a building, the, one of the first things to go is almost always the waterproofing, weatherproofing details. So when they say, unless it says expanding, it shrinks. If they say it doesn't shrink, it shrinks. If it says expanding, maybe it doesn't shrink, um, and it will let water in. Okay, so at the very end of this, we got to put a waterproof roof up here. What's the roof made of? The roof is a conventional built-up roof, which uh, is layers of uh, asphalt, asphalt impregnated felt with uh, bituminous. Uh, okay, so coating. this is a traditional four, San four Francisco four-ply roof. I especially want to thank Cahill Construction for allowing us to come and uh, be on their site and provide us uh, such terrific uh, access. This is an unusual opportunity. We really are very grateful. Um, we also want to thank uh, architect and engineer and the soils engineer and all the contractors. Thank you once again.